My name is Wally Mills. My wife, Anita, and I have the privilege of being a part of the Harbor community. And it is a great privilege. And it's a privilege for me to open God's word for you today. The focus of my talk today is about the compassion of Jesus. But I think it could be the compassion of mothers in our lives. In the ancient world, Compassion was in short supply. It was rare enough in the everyday world of people, but it was virtually unknown in the lives or in the rule of their gods. As a general rule, the gods of Greece and Rome were heartless, cold, and indifferent to human suffering. And that followed suit in terms of the lives of the people. Some ancient philosophers taught that having sympathy for one's fellow human beings was not only unnecessary, it was actually a weakness. How different is the God of the Bible? His very nature is compassion. His delight is to show mercy. Now, how do we define compassion? The Latin root of compassion literally means to suffer with another. Compassion is the ability to feel along with another person. It's the willingness to sympathize with the pain of another person. To have compassion means more than just feeling sorry for, every, for somebody. It means to get down where they are in the midst of their need and to suffer with them in the midst of their pain. My best definition of, suffer, of compassion is something I found in Warren Wearsby's commentary, and this is how he defined compassion. He said, your pain in my heart. Your pain in my heart. Biblical compassion means that when you see another person's pain or problem, you're moved by the need and you go out to where the problem is and you get your hands dirty trying to help the other person lift them up in their life. The Bible often tells us that God is compassionate but, the person, but it's in the person of Jesus that it's put on display. Amen. Jesus' whole ministry could be summed up in a sense with one word, compassion. We have seen his compassion displayed numerous times throughout his lifetime. He felt compassion for those who suffered physically. And I want to share with you a few excerpts from the gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40, it offers a telling example of what compassion meant to our Lord Jesus. There a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. And he said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing. He said, and then he said, be clean. Here was the most startling thing about that text. Jesus touched the leper. In doing that, he broke all the rules of that day. According to the Old Testament, if you had leprosy, you were unclean. People were so frightened of lepers that they made them live in a colony away from the rest of society so they wouldn't contaminate anyone else. But when Jesus saw the man with leprosy, he was so moved with compassion that he reached out and actually touched him. 
When Jesus saw two blind men in Jericho, Matthew 20, verse 34 tells us, he was filled with compassion and he touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Please understand, for our Lord Jesus Christ, compassion was not a feeling. It was a commitment to get involved with hurting people. Here is a brief, here's a brief, brief selection from Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, which says, Jesus went through all their towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And then this line, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This little snapshot of Jesus' life shows us the three characteristics that compromised, that comprised, pardon me, his public ministry. First, he preached. He went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That is, Jesus announced publicly the good news that is in him, in Jesus, that God's presence and God's rule would come personally into the world. Second, Jesus taught people how they should live if they were disciples of Christ. And last week in Luke chapter 6, Pastor Jeff explained all that meant to follow Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain. And finally, because Jesus was so concerned about people's physical needs, he frequently healed those who were sick and injured and oppressed by evil spirits, as described in the stories that we are going to look at here in Luke chapter 7. But what stands out here in this summary statement about Jesus in his ministry, it's his comprehensiveness. Jesus had an all-inclusive approach to meeting physical and spiritual needs. He did it everywhere. Matthew says that Jesus went through all the towns and even the villages teaching, preaching, and healing. So that's the snapshot. Jesus is a busy man. He's actively engaged to cross the length and breadth of the land. But then something happened that caused Jesus to stop for a moment. The Bible says in Matthew, when he saw the crowds, in the midst of his hectic life, all that preaching and teaching and healing, Jesus paused. He lifted his eyes. He looked out and he saw the crowds. Maybe they were the crowds of people who wanted to be healed. Maybe they were just the crowds of passers-by on the roads and streets. But he paused. And he saw the crowd. How do you and I, how do you and I feel about things? And how do we think about the world? It all depends upon where we're looking. Most of us have a tendency, I'm speaking probably personally, most of us have a tendency towards tunnel vision. We zero in on our own lives, our immediate concerns, our, fam our own families, and our own communities. We never look up and we never look out. We don't stop and take time to see the needs of the world. We fail to notice those outside of our narrow circle of our own self-interest. So we really don't see the crowds. We don't see the masses of people throughout the world who are in trouble or who are suffering. Our problem is, it isn't just that we don't want to help people as Jesus did, it's that we don't even take the time to look at them. 
we just don't stop to see. We tune out the painful realities of human suffering by tuning into entertainment day after day and hour after hour. Or we distract ourselves with a pursuit of fun and acquiring things until there's no time left to think about the world and its needs. The first story we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 7 verses 1 to 10 is, is an example of Jesus' awareness of various people. Listen as I read verses 1 through 3 of Luke 7. It says there, When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And there a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. There are three people who are prominent and have leading roles in this story. There's Jesus, there's the centurion, and his servant. We know the least about the servant. We know he must have been a young man. Luke says he was sick to the point of death. Matthew's version in Matthew chapter 8 adds that he was paralyzed and in great pain. We never see him. Jesus, as far as we know, never meets him. The centurion never mentions his name. We don't know the cause of his illness or how long he'd been sick. Now I picture this servant lying motionless on a couch. His breathing is labored. His face is bathed in perspiration. The only sound is an occasional moan. And it's evident to all who see him that only a miracle could save him now. And that's why the centurion came to Jesus on behalf of his servant. We know much more about the centurion. He lived in Capernaum. Centurions were the backbone of the Roman army, and they were chosen for their leadership skills. He's called a centurion because technically that means you're in charge of a century of men, a hundred men. You couldn't get married if you were a Roman centurion because you were sent to various corners of the empire, sometimes to stay 20 years in the service of the empire. And you can imagine how hard that would be on a family for a father to be away for 20 years. And so the centurions were, could not be married. And that meant that oftentimes they got very close to their servants and those around them because their servants were the only family that they had. And I want you to notice the barriers that Jesus crossed as he ministered to the centurion. Because compassion is a love that crosses remarkable barriers. Now what's remarkable about the centurion is he's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. Relations between the, the Romans and the Jews were never very good either. The Romans had no use for the Jews and the Jews hated the Roman overlords and their occupying army which the centurion represented. Most Jews wanted the, the Romans out of their country. And in the normal course of things, Romans and Jews very, are, didn't interact very often. But this centurion was different. He loved the nation of Israel. He recognized that somehow God had shaped Israel's history and, he, and that he had spoken and through their prophets and this Roman centurion had even paid to build a synagogue in Capernaum. But now we come to the central fact of the story. 
the centurion had a servant who his master valued highly. And that was rare indeed. In the Roman Empire, slaves had no rights. They could be mistreated. They could even be put to death. One ancient writer commented that when your animals are old, you throw them out to die. You do the same with your slaves. So the next surprising thing about this story is that a Roman centurion would care so much about his slave. This man is clearly a good man and a kind man. The Jewish elders around him respected him. He seems to clearly, clearly care about this servant who is sick unto death. And he's ready to call the master healer to come and intervene in this servant's life. And so when the centurion hears that Jesus has the power to heal, he speaks to the Jewish elders of the synagogue that he had helped to build. And he says, look, I'm a Gentile. I'm a Roman centurion. Would you go and speak on my behalf to this Jewish prophet and see if he would agree to come and help my servant who's dying? It's quite remarkable. This Roman centurion, this Gentile who sends for Jesus. It's remarkable that the centurion didn't go to Jesus himself. I mean, if he's so troubled about his servant, why didn't he go? So the elders go and they speak to Jesus and they stress the centurion's good qualities. In verse 4, he says, they say, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he's built our synagogue. It's no small thing that he's done. And the Bible says that the Jews pleaded earnestly for Jesus to go because the time was short and the servant is dying. And so Jesus went with them to the house of a Gentile to heal the, the servant of a Roman centurion. Jesus didn't have to go. He didn't owe it to the man. It's surprising that Jesus was willing to go. But we know that the compassion of Jesus is a love that crosses barriers and borders and ethnic differences, whatever they are. Jesus never made it to the centurion's house because the centurion wouldn't let him come. That's another remarkable thing. The reason why, that the reason that's given ought to sort of capture our attention. The centurion sent another group of friends with a message for Jesus. And the centurion said he wasn't worthy for Jesus to visit his house. He said, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. The Jews who served the centurion said, this man is worthy. He's kind and generous. The centurion said, I'm not worthy. And so he begged the Lord, please, I'm not worthy. Don't come here. But he conveyed this message, but I have utter confidence that you can do what you determined to do and that nothing can stop you. And, all, and most of us, if we were writing it, would add under our breath, but would you come anyway? Wouldn't you come? And wouldn't it, I'd feel a lot better if you came and you laid your hands on my friend. But Jesus, that isn't what he said. He said, I'm unworthy. Jesus is moved by the man's remarkable faith. And in verse 8, he said, this, the centurion speaks exactly the way a military man would speak. A soldier's way of thinking shines through his statement. And this is what he said, for I myself am a man under authority 
with soldiers under me and I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes and he's, I say to my servant do this and he does it. This is an amazing faith and it, it's surprising that he would have figured this all out. He argues from his personal experience that because he knew all about being in command and giving orders that must be obeyed. And he said, Lord, you have power over disease as I have power over my soldiers. And he argues from what he knows about himself to what he knows about Jesus. And he says, if my authority produces instant obedience, how much more will yours produce? How much did the centurion know about Jesus? I don't know. Probably not much. I'm sure he knew about his background and something about his teaching. He certainly knew that Jesus worked great miracles. Did he know that he, was, he would be talking to the creator of the universe? I don't think so. But he, knew, he did know that Jesus was more than a man, more than a carpenter, more than a good teacher. He saw Jesus for what he was and his great faith came from that vision. Because he saw Jesus as absolutely authoritative, he considered Jesus' word as absolutely authoritative, and he knew that Jesus didn't have to personally be present for his servant to be healed. Amen. That brings us to another remarkable thing. Jesus was amazed by this man's faith. When the Bible says in verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd and fo that were following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in all of Israel. You know, only twice in the Gospels was Jesus said to be amazed. Here, because of this man's faith and in Nazareth because of their unbelief. Jesus was amazed at him. Do you have any idea how kind and compassionate that little phrase is? You know, it makes sense if the men were amazed at Jesus. But Jesus in his kindness is amazed at this man, a Gentile, this Roman officer. He's amazed at his faith. And he turns to the crowd that's with him, Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, I've been up and down this land from Dan to Beersheba and I have not found this kind of faith in all the land. And the story ends in verse 12 with a final unusual thing. It's a remarkable miracle. Jesus saw the sincere pain and concern in the eyes of the centurion and Jesus had compassion on him and healed the centurion's servant without a word. The compassion of Jesus is a love that crosses barriers. And what is so surprising here is Jesus is reaching out in his mercy and in his power to this Gentile. And Luke doesn't even record what it is that Jesus spoke to heal his servant, if he even spoke. Luke just tells us that when everybody gets back home, the servant is well. Listen, Jesus didn't go. Jesus didn't touch him, didn't offer a public prayer. He didn't do anything outwardly. He just healed him, period. It's a pure grade A miracle. How did he do it? I don't know, but I know why he did it. He did it to demonstrate his compassion and beyond all question that he is the son of God. 
There's a second story in this passage in verses 11 and 17 that's just as interesting. Luke tells us what Jesus saw the day after this miracle. And it says there in verse 11, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. So here's the setting. Shortly after the healing of the centurion's servant, Jesus is traveling toward Nain and he's accompanied by a large crowd of people that have been following him and witnessing his miracles. But heading out of the town, they were heading in, heading out of the town in the opposite direction was another crowd with a very different mood. The crowd with Jesus was upbeat and joyful. The other crowd is in a funeral procession led by this widow that has now lost her only son. There was nothing pleasant about that town that day because that boy had died. The mournful crowd was about to carry out one of its own to the cemetery. What a clash of emotions the meeting of these true groups must have created outside the city of Nain. But as Jesus walks in, this whole procession puts Jesus face to face with a widow whose grief was evident she didn't seem to know who Jesus was, or if she did, it didn't seem to matter. No one begs Jesus to raise the young man from the dead, not even his mother. She did not ask for or expect anything except, please, would you just stand aside so that we could go through? But there was something that should be a comfort to any mother, and particularly to this mother, the Bible says Jesus saw her. Jesus saw her. Consider what Jesus saw in this poor mother. You could recognize her because she was, she was wearing a burlap garment. She covered, had covered her head and her face with asses, ashes. And you could see the trails of her tears as they, wa as they washed down her cheeks. Verse 12 tells us, the dead person was the only son of his mother. Her situation was a tragic one. She was a widow. She had made this same trip to the cemetery before. What a sad picture of loneliness and despair. Her heart must have been crushed when her husband died, but at least she had hope. She had a son, but death touched her household once again by taking away her precious son in his prime. He was just beginning life. And here we find he's cut down and another victim. And this time death left her destitute because this young man was her only son, her only earthly provider. Death robbed her of her hopes and dreams for her son, but it also robbed her of her immediate livelihood and material care in that culture this almost certainly means that unless she has a close relative that can take care of her, she's going to be reduced to begging. A, bit, a widow was going out to bury her only son. I'd like you to notice that Jesus not only saw these circumstances, but he also saw the widow. Verse 13 says, And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. 
Jesus' heart went out to her. He was compassionate. The Bible's filled with the evidence that our Savior is compassionate. One who is not only feels the pain and suffering of his people, but is moved deeply to the very core of his being by what he sees. And it's also filled with the evidence that when he's moved in such a way, he always does, pardon me, does something about it. Whenever the Lord Jesus confronts human sorrow and need, he feels compassion. He did then when he was here on this earth. Let me remind all of us, he does now the same thing as our sympathetic high priest. He's not an unfeeling savior. Sometimes in our despair, we are prone to feel like nobody understands and nobody cares. But when we discover that someone else feels with us, brings a ray of hope, and we're not alone, Jesus cares. Jesus understands. Jesus said to the woman that day, do not cry. Philosophers in those days very often comforted the bereaved with these words, do not weep, it will do no good. But Jesus could say, don't cry because he's the Lord of life. Because he was moved with compassion for, because he was about to do something about all of it. No one asked him to perform a miracle. He did it because he's a compassionate savior who takes initiative and acts in mercy on behalf of suffering and sorrowing people. And then Jesus does something remarkable. He reaches up his hand and he touches the funeral coffin. Everyone in the funeral procession would have stopped breathing because there was, a, there was no defilement more dramatic in the ceremonial law of Israel than contact with the person who had died. And here's Jesus reaching up his hand to touch the funeral coffin, but he does not become unclean. Instead, Jesus touches the coffin and he brings the funeral procession to an abrupt halt. And then he spoke, young man, I say to you, get up. And the man gets up and he begins to speak and everybody in the funeral walk is saying, who is this? Who is this that touches a funeral casket and doesn't become unclean but brings a man to life again? And the people who were there are saying, who is this? Surely God has visited us in the person of a great prophet. It was a wonderful and appropriate response, but they still had no idea who it was that they were talking to. It wasn't just that God had visited them with a great prophet. God had visited them himself in his son. And Luke tells us, the Luke man, the dead man, the dead man sat up and he began to talk. The young man just suddenly sat up. He was instantly alive as he could be. And I'm certain that there would have been a collective gasp among the crowd. Again, this was an exhibit that the young man, this exhibited that the young man was very much alive. He sat up and he spoke from death to life instantly. And then the next thing we see is Jesus gave him back to his mother. You know, any parent who's watched a child go through some life-threatening illness or surgery, 
Anyone who's waited anxiously for the result of a medical test on their child understands some of what this woman felt. This mother was actually what this mother actually watched helplessly as her son had died and then walked in horrible grief behind in front of his body as they carried him out to the cemetery. There can be no words to describe the joy she must have felt receiving her dead, dead son back to life. I'm sure this mother hugged that boy and didn't want to let him go. Her son was dead, but now he was alive. She would never forget that moment. She would never forget Jesus. I suspect every morning and noon and night, this woman sent up a prayer of thanks to God. She had every reason to be grateful. I wonder this morning, what's your image of God like? I think far too often our image of God is that we have a God who's remote and stern and unfeeling, who's unbending and impersonal. But how does the Bible present God to us? Think of the story of the prodigal son, if you know it. Jesus said he saw God like a father whose son had strayed off. And this father who stood day by day looking for his son. And when he saw the boy coming, he couldn't contain himself, but he ran out to throw his arms around him and welcome him back. That's what God is like. He's not passive or impassive unfeeling. He's compassionate. He cares for us. He even suffers with us. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for the fact that if it wasn't for God's compassion, we would all be in big trouble. Our salvation itself is rooted in the feelings of mercy that God has for lost, lonely, helpless people. Do you realize that the first thing that God feels towards sinners isn't anger? Yes, God is offended by our sin, but the first thing God feels for his lost and suffering children is compassion. I really believe that the biggest human problem of all isn't cancer or COVID or unemployment or broken families or war. As real and terrible as those things are, our biggest problem is that without Christ, we're lost. We're wandering around looking for answers, wondering what went wrong, why we can't seem to make life work, why we're so prosperous and yet so unhappy. Jesus felt for the crowd, Matthew says, like, and he calls them, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that's an appropriate response and description of the crowds in our world. These people, of course, were religious people, they had plenty of religion. What they didn't have, though, was a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. Their deepest and most basic need was to know Christ because, because he is the Lord of life, and he's the good shepherd, and he can, only he can save. Now, how do we apply these stories personally to all of us today? Listen, compassion is your pain in my heart. Compassion is not something you talk about. Compassion is something you do. And if you want your neighborhood, your city, your world to be changed, 
We need to get involved. Let me give you three things you can do. Number, number one, we need to pray aggressively. A few years ago, a prominent Christian magazine published an article called Rediscovering Prayer. It should strike all of us as ironic when the church rediscovers prayer. Spiritual and moral decay in our culture has brought us to the point of despair. And now despair has become our greatest ally because when we become in despair enough, we seek the Lord and we pray. My question is, are, are we desperate enough to start praying? We need to because we're living in a world of hurting, hurting people. We need to be, the second thing I would suggest that we need to do is we need to be personally involved in people's lives. We need to open our eyes and open our hearts to the needs of people around us. John 4, 35 says, I tell you, Open your eyes, look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. A few years ago, when we were living in Kingston, Anita and I started a new morning routine. After breakfast in our home in the morning, we would stop by McDonald's for a good cup of coffee. After coffee, we would continue on our day. But I went to McDonald's for purely selfish reasons. I like coffee in the morning. The price was right. You could get a coffee and a muffin for 99 cents back in those days with free refills and a free newspaper to read. Plus, there was free time with my wife. It was a great deal. Just go in, enjoy a coffee, free refills, and a newspaper. We soon discovered something very important we discover that other people have routines that take them to McDonald's at the same time we do every day. Anita and I noticed some of the same people showing up at McDonald's when we, when we were there. And I remember I had gone in there for me and I wasn't there for small talk with people that I didn't even know. And after a while, these other patrons, be, patrons began to say hello when they saw us and they would gauge, engage in small talk. And it slowly leaked out that I was a pastor. And I decided that I should speak when I'm spoken to, you know. There was one man who used to come in. His name was Joe, an old army man. He was in his late 80s. And at first when he came in, he sat alone and he looked kind of grumpy. And for the most part, people left him alone. Then all of a sudden, we didn't see Joe for several months and no one seemed to know what had happened to him. Then one day we walked in and there was Joe. But he looked differently. It was obviously he had had surgery on his face. And I went over and I told him that we'd missed him. And he proceeded to tell me that he had had another bout with cancer and he'd had surgery and he almost died. And I told him we were... We really missed him and we were happy to see him again and I went on my way. A couple days later, Anita and I are enjoying our coffee and newspaper and in walks Joe. And he came right over to our table and Joe asked if he could sit down with us. And I said no, because I was there for me. I didn't. (laughs) 
Joe was barely sitting down and he turned to me and he said, would you take my funeral? If the coffee didn't wake you up, that really woke me up. And I said to him, are you all right? And he assured me that he was. And I said, but I don't even know you. And Joe told me he didn't have a church that he belonged to. And that led to Joe starting to attend our church with his wife, Jesse, and later, to some degree, his daughter. God was telling me something, but I was a slow learner. God was saying, open your eyes, Wally, to the need around you. Sometime later, we, as we continued to go to McDonald's, we learned that a husband of one of the ladies who worked at McDonald's had cancer. You always knew that Sandy was there. You could hear her. And as her husband's cancer grew worse, we learned that she was taking time off to look after him. And Anita suggested that we should give her a card and put her a, a gift of money in it. She's the compassionate, generous one. And so I, I agreed. And later on, sometime after that, Sandy came and she thanked us. And she said, Frank, her husband, wanted me to take his funeral. I guess the moral of the story is, you know, if you want to get into the funeral business, <laughs> be kind to some people who are sick. But, pardon me, I dis digress. But I did that, and I shared the hope we have in Christ. And again, God was bringing me another thing to learn, another lesson to learn. God was opening my eyes. On another day, Anita and I were minding our own business when a different lady came in. Linda worked for the insurance company down the, down the road. And she and Anita would often chat about children and vacations and things like that. But this morning when she came in, she was in tears. She made a beeline straight to our table. She told us her husband had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. This happened over and over God was getting my attention. God was saying, open your eyes, Wally. Eventually, Anita and I were privileged to, to pray and share the love of Jesus with some of these people, both staff and patrons. We'd see them in church. We've discovered that this phenomenon is not unique only to Kingston. We go to a new coffee shop we still find people who have similar routines and our paths cross. May I suggest one final step in terms of application? We need to begin this week. There are people in your life who need your help, the help that only you can give. Some of them need a word of encouragement and you're the one who can give them that word. Some of them are carrying a heavy load of worry and you're the one who can lift that burden up with them by praying for them. Some of them are about to quit and you're the only one who can keep them in the race. Some of them been, have been hit with incredible string of trials and you're the only one who can lift them up in the name of Jesus. There are people all around you. Pray that God will bring at least one person across your path who needs your help that you can give. That's a prayer God will answer. For there are people all around you who are just barely making it. They're out there waiting for somebody to give them help. 
God has helped us that we might in turn share it with others. You change the world one heart at a time, one life at a time. Compassion that isn't personal isn't compassion. Jesus feels for ordinary folks like you and me, people who are struggling along through life, who are in trouble because of wrong choices or bad decisions or just moral weakness. And his heart goes out to them. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your incredible compassion on us that drew us to yourself, causes us to call on you and say, Jesus, you're my Lord. Thank you for the stories we've heard today. May that inspire us and to in turn give our lives to the ministry of compassion in the lives of others. Help us, O oh God, to be faithful and true and to have mercy. I thank you for your work in our hearts, in our lives, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want you to think about this. Christian mission begins with the fact that Jesus feels compassion for lost and hurting people. Because his heart goes out to a broken world, Jesus wants us, those who know him, to do something about it. With that said, Harbor, we are sent. <laughs>